Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Five, four, three, two, one. Cue music. This is Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Hello again, Chris Coleman with you alongside Alex First to talk about entertainment, specifically Movies First on a podcast that we call Movies First. Hello there, Alex. Christopher, a pleasure, sir. Do you remember the incident back in 2009 when a plane was ditched on a river and everybody survived. It was fantastic, was it not? It, it was an amazing story. Uh, six minutes worth of flying time, and they've turned it into a movie that runs a little bit over an hour and a half. This will indeed be a neat trick. Does it work, my friend? Well, it reveals things that I had no idea about. I mean, I thought you knew every single aspect of this story. Experienced pilot has the wherewithal to ditch on the Hudson River in New York, save all 155 people on board. What could possibly be more straightforward than that when it comes to creating a faithful narrative, you may well ask. He was immediately hailed a hero. How could there be enough to make a full-length feature film? Hey, Alex, how could there be enough to make a full-length feature film? Because there's a lot you didn't know. That's the answer. And Clint Eastwood, who directs this, has answered this with acuity and distinction. So, January 15, 2009, The Miracle on the Hudson. Captain Sullenberger. His nickname is Sully. Remember that, that hairy creature in the Disney <laughs> Sully that was Monsters Inc.? <laughs> Nothing to do with this movie. No, my friend. He's not blue. Was it it was blue, wasn't he? Sully? Blue, bluey green, sort of turquoise, blue, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. This is this is the Tom Hanks role. By the way, I have it on good authority because Captain Sullenberger has a shock of white hair. And Tom Hanks has a shock of white hair appropriately for this movie. And apparently Tom Hanks was stopped in the street because people thought he was the real captain, even though he doesn't really look like the real captain apart from the shock of hair. So that's what right hair and makeup can do for an actor. I like that. Anyway, having said that, Captain Sullenberger guided, glided his disabled plane onto the frigid waters of the Hudson River. But even as Sully was being heralded by the public and the media for this unprecedented feat of aviation skill, an investigation was unfolding that actually threatened to destroy his reputation and career. Can you believe it? It saved 150 passengers and five crew. Ah, but there's always someone who knows better. Well, usually I... Well, I wouldn't say usually, but often the investigation is when a plane has fallen to the ground somewhere or crash-landed and there's very few, if any, to tell the tale. So... They do it on flight simulation and so on. And that's what they did on this occasion. I'm, I'm talking about, obviously, there's an investigation when something like this happens. You don't just ditch a plane for no reason. But the national safety people, the National Transportation Safety Board in the United States, were the ones investigating Captain Sullenberger and, and what he had done. And a lot of it was based upon what a simulation would show. Because, of course, the two engines went out. And bear in mind that this was... Oh, it was 2,800, 2,800 feet 
which is not all that high. Yeah, and there's not and, a lot of height. And these things, despite the fact that they're very well aerodynamic, aerodynamically designed, they don't actually fly all that well once you turn the engines off. No, no. Well, apparently you count to 90, right? So it's 90 seconds after takeoff, and then you breathe a bit of a sigh of relief because I suppose birds don't fly higher than that. But on this occasion, a flock of birds struck US Airways Flight 1549 and took out both engines, and, and that's what caused this forced water landing. By the way, they had little more than 200 seconds. Now, what's that? Three and a half minutes. Three, to make yeah, a, three and a half, four minutes, yeah. To make a decision about whether to, where to go. Because they, they could have turned back to LaGuardia if they thought they would have made it, or they could have gone to another airport. But the captain obviously felt that it was not appropriate because they, he, he felt he, he would not have got there. So that's why he landed on the water. And this explores the real aftermath of the incident. I mean, the, the movie sort of says the, the pilot with this record of great proficiency, more than 40 years' experience, who remained incredibly calm and remarkably so in the face of potential, potential catastrophe, was called upon repeatedly to defend his actions. And that was the part of the story, the one the world did not know, that drew Clint Eastwood to the project. I mean, anybody who keeps their wits about them when things are going wrong, who can negotiate the problems without panicking, is someone of superior character. And Eastwood says, interesting to watch on film. But, but for him, the real conflict came after, with the investigative board questioning his decisions, even though he'd saved so many lives. And Tom Hanks is talking about this. He says, I'm not an aviator, but I know you're not supposed to be able to make a landing like that. This was a very pragmatic man who understood the realities of what he'd done and what it meant. Um, he'll never say he's a hero, but knowing with confidence that he could make that landing, that was the heroic thing he actually did, and he, of course, paid a price for it. That cost was exacted both during the day, Chris, when he and his co-pilot were being interrogated, and at night when Sully was haunted by nightmares about what could have happened. So Sully's a man who's prepared his whole life to do this one impossible thing that he didn't know he was actually preparing for. That's according to the writer who has put this screenplay together. But he says that when you meet him after 10 minutes with a guy, you understand why. And his real name, by the way, Chesley, C-H-E-S-L-E-Y, Captain Chesley Sullenberger. So there's a piece of trivia if you're ever asked that in Trivial Pursuit. Really fascinating, absorbing account of a man who had a job to do, not only did it to the best of his ability, but beyond what had been achieved before. Fortunately, all the boxes had been ticked because the co-pilot as well kept his wits about him. The pair have little more than three and a half minutes, not just one of them, to ensure everyone is plucked to safety safely, if you get my drift. I think Tom Hanks is a great actor and he does a really fine job, both vulnerable and strong here in the face of overwhelming public support for Sully's actions. And he plays the character as a man of great restraint, often unwilling or unable to show great emotion. So Eastwood and the screenwriter have, have done well to bring out the real behind-the-scenes drama, this untold story, ensuring there's tension and a quandary to be thought through, because otherwise, you know, it would have been a reasonably straightforward narrative, but I'm not sure that anybody would be particularly interested because they know the story from the news reports, or we, we remember the news reports. It was January 15, 2009, but it seems relatively fresh in my mind, and I'm not sure about yours. Yeah, it, when was it? It was 
January 15, 2009. Uh, now, Alex, one thing I'm curious about, and, and I, I don't know whether they make any references in it or not, of course, but this being, what, seven and a half years after the uh, tragic events where the planes were deliberately crashed into the Twin Towers, this also happened in the skies over New York. Is there any reference? Because there's been you know, a lot of changes made to flight paths around New York, I believe, since 2001. Is there any mo uh, reference to that in, in, uh, in, in the movie Sully? None whatsoever, actually. It's, it's fascinating. You're, you're quite right. Obviously, changes were made subsequent to that, but none at all. This is purely and simply about the ditching of the plane in the, in the water. And I should say that the screenwriter here is a guy called Todd Komenicki, who did Perfect Stranger, and it's based upon the book Highest Duty that the captain and his co-pilot, Jeffrey Zaslow, played in the movie by Aaron Eckhart, wrote. And the other person of interest here, as far as the cast of characters is concerned, is Laura Lilly. Laura Lilly is cast as Sully's wife, Laurie. And I, I say that that's important because even though he's a very restrained individual, we get to think at him through the eyes of his wife. And therefore, that's an important role. They, they could have even played that up even further than they did. And Aaron Eckhart, he doesn't have a lot to do. What he does is both is, is very good, but Again, his role is secondary. It really is Tom Hanks' movie. So we get to see the plane ditching on a number of occasions. We see snippets of personal stories from some of those on board. In fact, I actually thought they were the weak points in the narrative because there was not enough substance there. And these passengers, the characters that play passengers, merely served as a distraction from the main game. And I say that notwithstanding the fact that the primary concern, of course, of the captain and the co-pilot was the safety of everyone on board. One, a couple of things that I wanted to mention. Mm -hmm. Apparently a number of the extras in this movie were those who actually survived. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I'd want to do that, you know? Yeah, well, I, I was speaking to somebody about that. I didn't get that firsthand. I got it secondhand. That's what they told me, so I believe that. And do remember to stay on until the credits roll through. Unfortunately, the media screening I attended... There were lots of people who I don't think were media who left before the very end. You know, the credits start, they go out. And you, you then fail to see the real Sully and his wife and the survivors shown at the end of the movie, which I think is really, really important. So it was almost, oh, gee, you're being, you know, you're, you're being sacrilegious towards what actually happened. That, that's how I felt while people were sort of streaming out of the cinema. But it is still a very worthwhile movie. Probably not as great a film as some of other some of the others that Clint Eastwood has directed, but it's still most worthwhile seeing. Yeah, I, I'll get your number in a second. I asked you a question back at the beginning, and I, I think if we can get a, a, a just a, a reflection upon this, you talk about how the actual landing is shown and reshown and reshown, mm. and how that perhaps detracts from the movie. Is this a problem because of, as I said at the start, it was a six-minute flight and they've turned it into a movie that goes for more than an hour and a half? Do you think that that's... Oh, no, no, I actually don't think that that's... That didn't worry me at all that we saw that three times. I, I thought that was actually worthwhile. What I didn't particularly like was the... I know that they were important, the passengers, but we don't get enough... OK, gotcha. It, it's almost like they're cardboard cutouts. That's the bit of the movie that didn't work for me. And you probably did need one or two backstories, but... Yeah, I thought they were a bit clunky. The rest of the film was good. The rest of the film was very, very good. OK, no problem. So a score for Sully. 
Seven and a half out of ten. Okay, I am hearing, by the way, I have read a couple of articles suggesting that Tom Hanks may yet again be up for an Oscar for this one. Do you reckon? He's very, very good. He's, he's a lot more restrained than we've seen him before. But, yeah, look, I mean, it's a great performance. It's a great performance. No question about that. More understated than some of the other things that he's done. OK, fair enough. Let's move from Sully to uh, the latest animated blockbuster that is taking the world by storm, The Secret Life of Pets. And, Alex, I will say straight up front, I'm not really a pet person. I mean, I had a couple of dogs when I was a kid. I, I kept some goldfish, which you know we struggled to keep alive, uh, and, and had, when I was living in the UK, some gerbils, which were great fun. But uh, really... I'm not a pet person these wow, days. Wow, Chris, what a, I mean, you must be in the, the great minority because I don't know too many people who don't have a pet and who don't adore their pet. So maybe I mix in different circles, Chris. Well, maybe I'm just not a pet person. Yeah, <laughs> well, hang on. I'll get you a pet rock and I'll put some sort of hair dye on it and maybe, maybe you can stroke that every night before you go to bed. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm really, I'm incredibly devoted to pets. My wife cares more for our our dog than for our children or for me. And she would acknowledge that. And I think there are a lot of people out there. She says the reason is they give you unconditional love. Okay. Well, according to the ASPCA, somewhere between 37 and 47% of households in the US have a dog and 30 to 37% of households have a cat. While in Australia, we have one of the highest rates of pet ownership in the world. About 63% of Australian households own some sort of a pet. And indeed, there are more pets than there are people in this country. 25 million uh, pets to uh, about 24 million people. See, I told you you were in the minority here. And I'm, I'm that, quite comfortable with that. Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm actually shocked and disillusioned as a result. No, I'm not. I'm fine. I think the, the benefit that you've got, of course, is that you can come home and you don't have doggy dropping sometimes in the house as we do, where ours is a little one. And, yeah, that, that causes some consternation. Also, when I can't sleep through the night because the dog decides to jump on the bed in the middle of the night, and that's, that, that's, you know, done as far as I'm concerned. I'm a light sleeper. So, yes, there are advantages, that's for sure. But I think the advantages of having a pet outweigh. The reason I'm talking to you about this is because many of us dote over them as if they were the most precious and prized member of the family. So it seemed to me a really good idea to actually make a, an animated feature about this because you can enhance the cuteness factor. Can you not with animation? You can. And you do, yeah, and that's the thing do. about uh, animated movies. They are larger than life. Yeah, absolutely. And in one bustling Manhattan apartment building, the real day starts after the folks on two legs leave for work and school. And that's when the pets of every stripe, fur and feather begin their own nine-to-five routine. So they hang out with each other. They trade humiliating stories about their owners. They, they watch Animal Planet like it's reality television and so on. The building has a top dog named Max, voiced by Louis C.K., he is a quick-witted terrier rescue who is convinced he sits at the centre of owner Katie's universe. But he finds his pampered life turned upside down when she brings home a sloppy, massive mess of a mongrel with zero interpersonal skills. His name is Duke. And when this reluctant canine duo, so you've got Duke and Max, find themselves out on the mean streets of New York, they have to learn to set aside their differences and... They have to unite against a fluffy, cunning bunny named Snowball. Now, if you thought that Kevin Hart was irritating in terms of most roles that he plays, I think you're going to think even more of that once you see him as a the voice of this 
horrendous bunny. <laughs> uh, I mean, a perfect choice, I would argue. But Snowball is some piece of work. He He's building an army of pets who've been abandoned by their owners and are out to turn the tables on humanity. And as I mentioned, the concept is an absolute ripper. It should have made for highly entertaining and engaging movie fare. It should have. But it did not. For a piece of animation, I, I actually thought it was strangely flat and lacking in humour. And that's so essential when you're making a family movie. The one time I did laugh aloud was when a fat cat knocked back his feed with a swipe of his not inconsiderable paw. That was near the start of the movie. That was the moment his owner left the apartment and left, left some food for him in his bowl or her bowl. So I also found the story tried to constantly change gears. So one minute characters were feuding. Then they weren't feuding. Then they were again. And this bunny, as I mentioned, is unhinged and nasty, and then he's not. So overall, I thought the characters were too frenzied and the plot, well, it was scattergun. It, it set it up nicely, but then it kind of lost it. And I, I'm afraid for all of its promise, The Secret Life of Pets actually failed to connect with the audience in the way that I would have expected, and most animated features these days do. In fact, one of my favourite movies of all time, I've mentioned this to you before, is Toy Story 3. Mm. In fact, 2 and 1 were brilliant too. So I love animation, generally. It's directed by Chris Renault, The Secret Life of Pets. It's 91 minutes in duration and it's rated G. Chris Renault did Despicable Me, which is a great little film. And, in fact, Minions, there, there was a Minion short before The Secret Life of Pets, which I enjoyed more than The Secret Life of Pets. So there you go, there's a bit of a hint. But, uh, look, I walked away disappointed, unfortunately, Chris. The Secret Life of Pets. You mentioned Toy Story in there, and I just wonder, does this movie also suffer because, let's face it, Toy Story is about what toys get up to when we're not around. This is what pets get up to when we're not around. Is there, you know, is there a problem there? Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about it till you mentioned it. I don't think I compared it to Toy Story, but I compared it to all the other yeah. animated features I've seen recently, and this does not measure up. It's only a sort of five and a half out of ten type movie. Okay, and I didn't even have to ask you for the number. There we go. So five and a half out of ten for The Secret Life of Pets. You're listening to Movies First. His name's Alex First. I'm Chris Coleman, and we're now moving on to Captain Fantastic. I just had to do that in, you know, big voiceover mode there. I'm very impressed. You, you would be fantastic doing the voiceover for animation. And that they'd pay you a pittance, but you'd still do it because you're that kind of guy, aren't you? I'd love you're, to. I'd love to have a crack. Kind of guy, I think it'd be wonderful. You don't own a pet, so... That means that it doesn't matter if they pay you less because you don't have to fork out for all of the money that we spend. Do you know how much hey, money if they you paid, spend? If they paid me chicken feed, I could have a pet chicken. Very good. I still think the pet rocks the idea. <laughs> Captain Fantastic is a long movie, Chris. It's nearly two hours, 119 minutes, rated M. By the way, Sully is also rated M, is only 96 minutes. Captain Fantastic is quirky. Do you like quirk? I do like quirky when I'm in the mood. Ah, yes, OK. Bette Midler did in the mood and, and the Andrews sisters did in the mood too. The, the, this one won the Best Director of Uncertain Regard at Cannes this year, at the Cannes Film Festival. And it's a story about a man and his six children being homeschooled and brought up in the pristine wilderness. They've sort of opted out of consumer society, which I don't think is a bad idea, quite frankly. It's a good concept. In the woodlands of the Pacific Northwest in the United States, Ben Cash, played by Viggo Mortensen, like him a lot. Fiercely independent patriarch, raising his family as far as he can 
from the influence of our consumer culture. And he fills the days of his children with rigorous education, demanding physical training and intense instruction for surviving in the wild. And he raises a tribe of philosopher kings. They're that well-educated. They've got cardiovascular and muscular endurance of elite athletes. They've got a grasp of classic texts far beyond their years. And it's this off-the-grid paradise that Ben Cash, the Vigo Mortensen character, and his wife have created. Now, unfortunately, his wife's been in hospital for more than three months, and tragedy strikes. When the family leaves its secure lifestyle, suddenly the future is not all that assured. And for the writer and director, a guy called Matt Ross, the story is an exploration of the choices that parents make for their children. He's fascinated by all the issues that revolve around parenting. So the Ben Cash character, Vigo Mortensen, has given up the outside world and whatever personal ambitions it held for him. And he's devoting his life to being the best father he thinks he can be. The question becomes, is he the best dad in the world or the worst? Is what he's doing insane or insanely great? Some of Cash's family's experiences have roots in Ross's own upbringing because his mum was interested in alternative living situations. When he was a kid, it wasn't actually called living off the grid, but they did live in communes in Northern California and Oregon. And they were in the middle of nowhere without TV or most modern technology. So like the family in Captain Fantastic, Ross's early life was in some ways a grand adventure. In other ways, though, it was a dislocating experience for a child. And he said it became especially hard during adolescence. He was separated from children his own age when he started becoming attracted to the opposite sex. And obviously that can be rather difficult. And he said his friends were far away. He wanted to have that social element in his life. The eldest cash son, Bo, is at that point in the movie, while the younger children are still finding the current lifestyle exhilarating. And Ross admits in writing the screenplay, he's also grappling with his own questions about how to be a parent in contemporary America, which obviously applies equally here. Is it intelligent to allow our children to be electronically connected at all times, Ross asks. And Cash's choice is far more extreme than most parents would even consider. For 10 years, he and his family have lived completely off the grid in this remote compound where they hunt and grow their own food. I mean, it calls into question whether anybody would even be allowed to do that, but if we put that to one side... It actually takes a few minutes to understand the extremities to which Cash has taken his family. But by about half an hour in, the film has actually started to weave its magic and I actually felt totally engaged. The scenery is quite breathtaking. You actually want to move to the woods. It's that grand. And the children are just super smart. They're talented. They're athletic. The movie does actually raise some important questions about the rights and wrongs of parenting. Self-sufficiency is one thing, but... Then there's the question of how best to behave around others. I mean, to drop out of society completely means giving up social norms. And is that necessarily a good thing? I, I really like Viggo Mortensen. I, I usually do in his films. He's strong. He's compelling in the lead role here. At first convinced in assuming the role of Cash by the wisdom of what he's done. But then he has cause to query that. He's the glue that actually binds the feature together. The children are very good, too and they form quite a formidable brood. It's, it's entertaining, at times very funny as well, Captain Fantastic, definitely engaging. I thought 119 minutes was a bit self-indulgent, could have benefited from being paired back. I'm not convinced the ending was right either. 
I think they sort of copped out a little bit with the ending. But other than that, the utopian vision presented certainly has merit as a subject right for a movie, and it's called Captain Fantastic. Now, you said it's 119 minutes. Mm. Does it hold you for the 119, or do you start to Well, as wander? I say, yeah, it, uh, that's what I was suggesting, that it's a little long. Yeah, 95 would have been okay. Uh-huh, all right. Uh, score for Captain Fantastic? Seven and a half out of ten. Still okay. a fun film. Still a fun film, okay. And, and, and almost fantastic, but Captain Almost Fantastic wouldn't quite exactly. have the same ring to it. So, Hey, listen, this is why you do what you do and they do what they do. No, 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 That's I, I think it's creative <laughs> enough but not creative to the extent that you could... Mind you, maybe that would be a talking point if you named a movie Captain Almost Fantastic. <laughs> the almost good enough movie. Uh, let's move on, let's move on. We have one more to do today, and this is uh, Louis Theroux, Louis Theroux, uh, my Scientology movie. Uh, is it what it is on the box? Well, it is exactly that. It's kind of like the movie going back 20 or 30 years where they talked about Volvos being boxy but good. This is about... Scientology, and it is Louis Theroux's movie. So you've said it in one, yes. <laughs> but it's not all that creative, is it? I mean, should we call our podcast "Movies Almost First? Uh, probably not. Maybe probably we could call not. it. Maybe we could call it our movies podcast. Oh yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and if we were pretentious enough, we would call it Chris Coleman and Alex First's movies. Yes, forget this. Let's talk about Let's talk Louis about Theroux. this instead, yes. Yes, exactly. Oh, I'm losing it. If you want proof that Scientology is a cult and not a religion, you actually should see what is a really fascinating first-hand documentary. 95 minutes, rated M. And I say first-hand because Louis Theroux is front and centre throughout this, and he wanted to get inside the so-called Church of Scientology, in inverted commas, and interview people associated with it. When he first proposed to do that via email... He was basically warned off. He was ignored by church elders. Those emails are the starting point for this documentary. Remember, the church was started by a science fiction writer, L. Ron Hubbard. Since his passing, it's been run with an iron fist by David Miscavige. He's painted as a bully of the worst kind. And we saw part of that in the documentary last year that Alex Gibney did, Going Clear Scientology and the Prison of Belief. That's all well and good, but you actually get to see him dishing out physical pain here or at least a representation of him doing so. We'll get to that in a moment. That assessment doesn't just come from any quarters but from people who worked extremely closely with David Miscavige for decades. Profession, professing enlightenment, it's actually impossible to get past the notion that it's all about fleecing people to obtain as much money as they possibly can to continue their crusade bigger and better than ever. I mean... The church own their own production studio. They churn out colourful infotainment, extolling the virtues of themselves and the church's way. Thoreau, and this is where I get back to dishing out physical pain and mental torment, mm. Thoreau, uh, Thoreau employs actors to assume the roles of Miss Cabbage and the most renowned Scientologist of a lot of them, Tom Cruise. In the case of Miss Cabbage, various actors trying to fill the role deliver lines Miss Cabbage has actually used. I mean, how do we know he's used them? Well, because of widely circulated vision of carefully orchestrated Scientology events where he's seen at the podium. So this has been put out by the church, and basically what you have here is actors repeating those lines. 
the greatest insights, though, are provided by a guy called Marty Rathbun. He was at one time one of the most senior executives in Scientology. He was the inspector general. The moment anyone tries to leave the sect, they're denounced, often trailed, sometimes for many years, and Rathman is one such case. Mind you, as helpful as he is, he also shows clearly that he's got a darker side within this documentary. And the benefit of Louis Theroux and the way he does this is he keeps the cameras rolling. He also oversees, this is the Rathman character, oversees one of the most shocking scenes in the documentary, a session with actors playing the parts of executives of Scientology being humiliated and belittled by Miss Cabbage. This is but one of several occasions that Thoreau uses actors to replay some incidents people claim they experienced as Scientologists. And he does that in an attempt to better understand the way that the group operates. I mean, one thing's clear, the church is paranoid about anyone who dares look into it. You know, Thoreau's literally followed by members of the church who film him while he's putting together this documentary. Isn't that bizarre? And yes. legal letters fly. These legal letters are flying left, right and centre. Any outsider coming near the premises is watched and then prevailed upon to leave the area immediately. I mean, these guys are absolutely paranoid. So Thoreau's reenactment style may be unconventional, but it certainly makes its mark, and his style is not to show emotion, but to ask some unforgettable questions, and then, as I say, keep the camera rolling throughout the interchanges with Scientologists and actors and Marty Rathman. If you do not side against the church before you see this, in other words, if you're neutral or if you're even positive, I dare say you could be against them after you've seen this documentary. Uh, you could argue that Louis Thero by Scientology movie could have been more tightly edited, even though it was only 95 minutes, I thought it dragged a bit, but it remains really revelatory and in large measure engaging. So it's really, it's a fascinating account, and I, I reckon if you want to know about Scientology, see these two docos, that and Alex Gibney's Going Clear Scientology in the Prison of Belief that came out last year and sort of bookend your, your viewing, and I think you'll, be, um, you'll probably be better off for it. So, okay. you know, I, I, was just, I was just shocked. Yeah. I really was. Uh, it, it's a fascinating subject for him to take on, and I mean, that, that Thoreau has not you know, steered away from, from con controversial subjects right through his career with, uh, with, with many documentaries. And his, and his, uh, when, when Louis met this person, that's what I'm, I'm thinking back to when he took on uh, Born Again Christians, he took on The Survivalists, he's had a crack at Swingers, which was uh, uh, interesting. Uh, and, um, and I'm trying to think who else it was as well. Oh, well, when he... Um, uh, when he did his interview with Jimmy Savile, of course, the the, the, mm -hmm. the, the disgraced former TV star uh, in the UK. Scientology, it's, it takes that to a whole extra level, doesn't it? Oh, boy, does it ever. And, I, look, people have got controversial views about this. I understand that. So, you know, go along and see it. Judge it for yourself. But uh, oh, I, I can't get past the fact that the way they treat people is anything but what I would have thought a church should be doing. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Hey, Alex, uh, we are done for this week. It's been a very, very diverse bag for movies. It has. We week. haven't given a score, though, for oh, Louis Theroux. my mm. apologies. Let's give a number for it and be done. Six and a half to seven out of ten. Okay. Today we have reviewed uh, Sully, The Secret Life of Pets, Captain Fantastic and Louis Theroux, my Scientology movie. And, Alex, first, we'll be back in another seven days, give or take, to talk about some more movies here on Fabulous, the Fabulous, sir. 
absolute delight to be with you again. You've been listening to Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Subscribe to the full podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher and iTunes or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell. And together, we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.